Welcome. We are going to spend the next hour talking about all the wonderful things that happened in the year of dun, 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 1990. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing well, Mo. I'm excited for this new show and to relive 1990, my childhood. For us, I, I feel like this decade was was our decade. Definitely. For sport, getting into it indeed around this time. For us, it's those formative years where we uh, really uh, cut our teeth on sport. And I was just getting into music, so these songs that we're going to play from 1990, absolute cracking. Interestingly, we talk about this before we went on air, but the songs, a lot of them that we're playing this hour, are almost one-hit wonders. It's mm. interesting. But great songs all the same. Amazing and, songs, and that's why we chose them, yeah. Now, can you guess these almost they're not they're not really one hit wonders, but most of them you'd think, well actually this is their main this is their big song. This is the one that made them. In the year of nineteen ninety in sport. Before we do that, let's play a song, get you on the mute. This is the Happy Monday Step On. Welcome back. Sport in 1990. Where do we start? Now, Dan, how are your Roman numerals? Not the best. I was wondering about that. I was like, Dan, which which Super Bowl is this? Uh, I'm trying to count this. I think this is Super Bowl 24. Does that sound right? I think the maths works out. Super Bowl 20. I'm going to go with that. Super Bowl XX1V. It's 24. I I can do this. Now, this is where I talk about formative years. San Francisco 49ers versus the Denver Broncos. It's like it's the American football teams of the era, really. Bit of a one-sided affair. Yeah, 55-10. This was the sort of time in the UK when American football, it became really big. And I think people just watched highlights but everyone got their team and that's why you've still got San Francisco 49ers as a popular team out there right now because of their success they had in the 80s and 90s and this was just that they were the team then. 
and you're getting loads of people wearing the retro mm. 49ers tops and things like that and uh, the Wait. jackets and things like that and, and it's because of yeah absolutely Super Bowl XXIV yeah 24 1990 <laughs> yeah Super Bowl 1990 why do they make it easy for us exactly everyone will know 1990 trying to complicate it for imagine us. I, I really don't think that anyone in the States thinks oh yeah I remember who won Super Bowl 24 because everyone's like, so what year was Super Bowl 24? Make it easy. Is it because the games are played in the year before? In, the in Rome. And, and, yeah. Well, you're right. No, you're right. That is so clever, Dan. You're right. Because the, the, the American Football League crosses over two years. Essentially, yeah. the Super Bowl's in one year. But the main league before the playoffs is the year before. Now, but most sports I feel like I need to give that. you a prize for, for saying uh. that. Phil Taylor. Wins his first world title. This is one of the things about 1990. There are a lot of big names that had their first this year. Phil Taylor starts his massive charge as a as a darts player and wins his first world title. He sort of took over the mantle from Eric Bristow, I believe. I believe that Bristow actually helped him. And was He was kind of like his protégé. So, is that the word, protégé? Yeah, yeah. He, 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 he looks at it and really respected him because, obviously, Eric Bristow was the original genius of darts, got everyone into it in the 1980s. And then, obviously, this was the first of the legend that became the power, Phil Taylor. And... Well, uh, to be honest, we could spend most of the 90s talking about Phil Taylor, so uh, mm, we might... deserves it yeah. from the start, an absolute legend. And, and most of the noughties as well. Yeah. Golf. Now, golf was important, particularly if you're a Brit. I guess most of us are. Unless we've suddenly gone global, which, you know, could happen. Um, the golf tournaments. The Masters went to Nick Faldo. Hurrah! The US Open... Hale Irwin. Who's the who's Hale Irwin, Dan? Exactly. I, I I feel like we're letting down the golf the golf fraternity if we just uh, say, oh yeah, Hale Irwin. Uh, the British Open went to Nick Faldo. Good year for Nick. And the PGA Championships, Wayne Grady. Nick Faldo became the first player to win back-to-back Masters titles since Jack Nicholas in 1965-66. See, look, you can say it in that way. By PGA Tour money leader was Greg Norman with $1.1 million. There's nothing to sniff at. I'm trying to calculate it, but I, I'm guessing it's probably somewhere in the region of five or six million pounds converted to... He's not sure, anyway. To, to modern money, but yeah. Good, good, uh, good bag there for Greg Norman. Now, World Snooker Championships. Stephen Hendry was another first. Yeah, sort of passing of the guard, wasn't it? From the dominance that we had of Steve Davis in the 1980s and then 1990, along comes um, Stephen Hendry, another legend. I remember as a kid, and he must have had a significant birthday, either 18 or 21 in the late 80s, and I remember him being interviewed and said, and they said, what do you want for your birthday, Stephen? And I think it was on TVAM or whatever the breakfast programme was of that era. right. And uh, he said, I want to be world number one. I want to win the world championships. And then, lo and behold, 18 months later, whatever it was, 1990, he wins his first world championships at the Crucible. And uh, definite changing of the guard. I feel sorry. I I mean, everyone feels sorry for Jimmy White. Oh, yeah, what a talent. He he was like the Hurricane Higgins of his time. He was kind of like an absolute, so talented and 
had the sort of reputation off the table as well as on it. A bit of a showman and the most liked player for Prob- 10 years. Probably, I think probably ever. ever. And so, and seemed just such a, like, a nice, genuine person and just couldn't quite, just seemed to freeze at the big moment, didn't he? No one really disliked Jimmy White. They all liked him. You know, there was something to, to, to say about his character. Now, particularly in, in this year... Um, it was the first time since 1982 that Davis failed to reach to reach the final, and he lost to Jimmy White in the semi-final. You That's were... the thing. You thought, okay, Davis not in the final. Jimmy White's finally beaten him. He's in the final. Stephen Hendry's not won it before. Yeah. This is his time. Wouldn't have it been nice? Exactly. Wouldn't have it been nice? So the young guy. Stephen Hendry could have had his dominance still, but after that, yeah. I know, selfish Look, or what, it's, right? It's, it's almost like, it's just the world doesn't always fall into place like it should, I don't think. Davis had beaten him four times previously in the last four years. Mm. And uh, he, son- he finally got on top of him and we thought, okay, this is it. The fans of Jim White thought, this is the time. He's going to win that tournament, finally. But no, he lost 16-12 to Stephen Hendry. Now, Stephen Hendry, I suppose, in a little way, was a bit of a Nick Faldo of, of snooker. Now, you mentioned Alex Higgins, the 1982 champion Alex Higgins, returned to the, the Crucible after missing out on the previous year. Um, he lost to uh, Stephen James 5-10 in the first round. After the match, he punched an official in the stomach in the post-match uh, press conference. And this alongside a threat to have Dennis Taylor killed um, at the 1990 World Cup a month earlier led to Alex Higgins being banned for an entire season the next 1990 uh, season. I suppose the other thing with, well, we mentioned Phil Taylor with the darts and snooker is that they were drinking, they were drinking at the yeah, same time as playing, live. People wouldn't believe it. You, If you actually, because there wasn't as many um, TV screens catching it, but you're right. And someone could be not throwing a dart or not potting any balls for 20 minutes and they would have a drink next to them and it was they would have many drinks i'm yeah. sure that i would i would estimate that alex higgins was under the influence more than he wasn't yeah uh, in absolutely. all of his career um so Which probably unfortunately led to some of these things that's happening. exactly what i was alluding to is that actually um that might be the reason this is the equivalent of what happens on a friday night mm. to some people and it happened uh happened at a world championships now I, I've been looking forward to talking about this now obviously 1990 there was a World Cup this year we mentioned it slightly there Alex Higgins and Dennis Taylor there was something happened between them at, at the 1990 World Cup in Italy but there's something special about heavyweight boxing oh and there was one hell of a fight this year and you can pick out odd years here or there where you just think there was a seminal fight one Mike Tyson probably the scariest boxer that ever stepped into the ring I would would say that's fair biggest puncher most iconic probably along with um, Muhammad Ali and a legend of the sport do you think and this is what I, I would say is that maybe people are more intimidated by at the time at least if we talk 19, mm. 1990 were more intimidated with Mike Tyson than any other boxer in the past I think yeah. that's probably yeah. it at that point I think it's I think it's boxer where he was promoted where 
he was the first that was promoted to look like that. I don't think that there was that same promotion before Mike Tyson, and I think he was the start of that big promotion. And you know, he had that that slightly Don King but around him, slightly shady character. You've got mm. to admit, looking back, and I think that you didn't have that sort of hype that he created about a fighter probably before that, since Muhammad Ali. That I think it took. Mike Tyson to take um, boxing literally into the into the mega mega stardom of sports. Now, what happened is Mike Tyson, undefeated, stepped into a ring in Tokyo, Japan, and faced James Buster Douglas. What turned out to be not just sport, not just boxing, probably sports, or one of sports' biggest upsets after Tyson got knocked out in the 10th round, having won every single one of his previous fights by knockout, mm. suddenly got beaten by a 42-1 to one against yep. fighter. That's These are two people one-on-one. So if you put £10 on, you'd have won 420 Wow. In a, in a one-on-one. There's only, yeah. there's only three outcomes, really, and a, a, a draw is possible, but rarely happen. There's a few different things going on here. Dan, I want you to give the cause of James Buster Douglas because people say, oh, it was lucky. This was no, not lucky. No, 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 tell no. Us, tell look, us about this match and why this is not lucky because this is not a, a lucky punch. This is a whole fight. This is 10th yep. round. So James Buster Douglas was not expected to trouble Mike Tyson at all. This match was in Japan. It was literally they say just to sell it to the Japanese market, just to make money. It was just supposed to be a walkthrough. James Buster Douglas had his own problems. Literally, I think it was six weeks before the fight, his mother had passed away. He, everyone likes to have the analogy that Mike Tyson went in there and he had all the problems. James Buster Douglas, mother had died literally a month or six weeks before. And James Buster Douglas was winning from the start and fighting well. I don't know whether you can say that the Tyson corner maybe um, underestimated things a bit because there's a famous part in the fight where Mike Tyson's face is swollen up and there was no ends well. Is that what you call it? The metal thing that yes, yeah, ends well? Essentially, it's it's a piece of metal that they chill... And often they use adrenaline. I think at the time they were using adrenaline to to stop bleeding, but also to bring down the swelling so and things like Mark that. Basically, Mike Tyson's face had come up pretty hard from the punishment he was taking from about the third or fourth. Now his corner was so underprepared; they didn't have an end swell. Whether that was confidence of not expecting anything to happen of note, they ended up using the glove with cold water in to press against Mike's face, and I think that. They just became in a place in the fifth round or, or middle rounds where he, he was going to need a knockout. Now, he found that knockout, Mike Tyson. I think it was in the eighth. That's correct. In the eighth round, he knocked him down. And and But before that, Buster was doing well. He was winning literally... Probably every round. Yeah. Maybe not the first, but I think I think the first. But, you know... He fought brilliantly. He wasn't scared. He was strong. He was big. He was everything that Mike Tyson needed to prove that he wasn't just a big punching, just walk through everyone. This is what Mike Tyson needed. He needed to finish him like he looked like he did with that amazing uppercut. But 
uh, James Buster Douglas composed himself, got up, and then by the next round, he was dominating again. And was it the next round or the round after that he knocked Mike Tyson out and Mike Tyson didn't know where he was and he was he was, he was was trying to get that gun back in his mouth and we saw the biggest upset ever. And I think even as um, what we were, young, ten, I was a 10-year-old kid then, maybe a nine, I still remember it now. It was... It was definitely on par with the World Cup for me. Just the shock of it, and um, but but because he was such a sporting icon and a great fighter. But I think people have to give credit that this wasn't like a one punch out of nowhere. This was just a great performance by Buster, James Buster Douglas, and give him a bit of respect for what he did. I say it was uh, apart from that knockdown and the knockdown. Uh, they, it was a bit they, of a long count. It was a little bit of a long count, but this happens in boxing. I feel like the count isn't necessarily 10 seconds. It's a, it's a 10 count almost. That's how it seems to be in, in boxing. The annoying thing is, I suppose, for, for Buster Douglas is that there was an appeal saying oh, there was a long count. And this is the thing that happened with the, um, the Don King era of appealing and, and really intimidating everyone involved in, in boxing. In that they appealed in four days, you know, it took four days for for the award and the championship to go to James Buster Douglas. So he couldn't necessarily celebrate in the same way. there's some of the way. people who might have betted on that. Might have well, that. yeah, I mean, there's there's going to be lots of things involved. I mean, Don King, there's there's money involved either way, somewhere along the line, legal or, 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 or otherwise. Um, so it kind of took the shine off of it a little bit, but it was comprehensive apart from that one punch from Mike Tyson. Mm. Almost every other round, he had completely cleared, and he just wasn't scared. Everyone else that walked into the ring was half defeated mm. before they actually threw a punch, Absolutely. and he was not that way. He was really determined. He obviously had things that happened to him, and it actually brought the best out of him. Phenomenal! You've got to you've got to tune in and and watch that again. You'll see how dramatic that is, particularly knowing Mike Tyson and the legend he was and is still is and seeing what uh, James Buster Douglas did. We're going to play your song. We'll be back with Other Sport from 1990.
Welcome back. Sport in 1990. We've got some good stuff coming up. But let's talk tennis. We talked about changing of the guards. There's a little bit of that now. So the uh, Grand Slam men's champions were as follows. Ivan Lendl. Won the Australian Open. Mean, mean Evan Lendl. Sure. The French Open went to who? Who? Andres Gomez Santos. Who is Ecuadorian? He is. This is was his only major win. To be honest, Dan, I, I mean, I mean you, you said that he was the uh, he's the uncle of Nicolas Pente, who who I who I know about and I've seen him play, particularly in the in the nineties. But yeah, this uh, this tennis player Gomez, I didn't, I don't really remember. I don't remember seeing. But this is about the time I started getting into tennis. Would you say that the Australian, I'm sorry, the French, you could have specialists. You'd have guys that would come along and maybe win this tournament who you wouldn't really hear of maybe the rest of the season. And maybe it was like absolutely this just for this tournament. Yeah, that was absolutely. It. And, and th- there were specialist clay court players. Um, from different countries ar- around the world, and they would that would be the the highlight of their season, um, and they would specifically say, oh, "I can't be doing with Wimbledon. It's grass. I can't play on grass. Uh, it's very soon after the French Open." So, the French was often the tournament where you'd have that winner that wouldn't do well in some of the other tournaments. Wimbledon went to Stefan Edberg, and then we had the U.S. Open and pistol Pete Sampras who captured his first Grand Slam title and this is the thing I was trying to say is this is the start of Pete Sampras's domination um, we'll, he, we'll probably talk about him a lot in the night <laughs> uh, along with a lo- along the way he defeated six ranked players Thomas Muster in the fourth round Evan Lendl in a five set quarter final uh, breaking Evan Lendl's uh, streak of eight consecutive US Open finals he then defeated John McEnroe in a four-set semi-final and uh, came up against fourth-ranked Andre Agassi. And Pete Sampras won in straight sets to become the US Open's youngest ever male singles champion at the age of 19. And that's the other thing we forget. 19 years old, he won his first Grand Slam. I think legend. Because of his long career, and we remember him as a slightly receding haired, hairy Wimbledon champion, we forget that he had more hair and he was 19. And he looked so fresh faced then. He does. Yeah. He really does. Again, I've been watching a lot of these retro uh, retro matches and uh, yeah I, I I didn't see this one but I did watch an earlier one of Pete Sampras versus uh, Andre Agassi and uh, yeah they look so young this would have been when Andre Agassi was wearing a wig that's that's what I, that's the other thing I want to say he was actually wearing a wig all those like my sister was one of them that had a thing for Andre Agassi particularly because of his hair long hair weren't it his and he wig. had a wig I feel like I should get a wig just because it worked for him and he got a lot of attention. Maybe that would be the solution for me. 
Now, in the females section of tennis this year, we had something very, very similar. Steffi Graf won the Australian Open, and again, Steffi Graf had a dominating 1990s. Monica Seles became the youngest ever French Open champion at the age of 16. 16? 16. Wow. She went on to win eight Grand Slam singles titles before the age of 20 and was a year-end winner uh, two years in a row. Prodigious. That's one of the things maybe... we I, I think we forget about that with Monica Seles, and I certainly did, and um, we'll talk about what happened later on in her career, but I think we forget how young she was and how well she did in that early part of her, in that early part of her career because she had a little bit of a comeback and a, and a bit of a bit of time out of, of of tennis but we forget 16 years old winning eight titles before the age of 20 so we talk about Steffi Graf and I suppose that maybe because of the the Steffi Graf Andre Agassi axis and we talk about Martina Navratilova we don't necessarily talk about Monica Seles no, so much no. um talk about Martina Navratilova she won the Wimbledon championships and it was her final Grand Slam win as a singles player and that's the other thing I was going to say about a changing of the guard we had Monica Seles winning her first Grand Slam handing over to Martina Navratilova and then Steffi Graf is that continuity that ran between the two of them um, and it actually was it, it typified the the decade I think you could probably say those and then going on to the Williams really were the dominant forces in, in women's tennis in the 1990s. And then we had the US Open as Gabriella Sabatini. Look, I want to give her the plaudits of winning her first and only uh, singles Grand Slam tournament at the US Open. And she did, she did very well and she won uh, doubles tournaments as well. F1 was a really interesting year. We had the controversial fight between Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost. And I two f- legends. I feel this is very similar to other other discussions we've had in the in the show. That we had the two characters of Alain Prost, who is again a little studious. Bit, yeah. Boring. A bit geeky, very a bit conservative, very efficient winner, versus the rock and roll Ayrton Senna that seemed to just capture people's imaginations. But he was a bit of a maverick, and kind of looking back, and I read through this, and I knew about it, but he wasn't necessarily a character that I'd really want to aspire to be, apart from being a winner. Ayrton Senna was controversial because of what he uh, ended up doing. And there was a, a dramatic battle between Senna and former teammate Alan Prot, who um, made the switch to Ferrari. Ferrari's first title challenge for several years led to the championship after uh, three consecutive mid-season wins, getting to some sort of point where they could actually win the driver's championship. And the thing that happened in the penultimate race of the championships in Japan, I feel like Japan had a really dramatic... Suzuka, uh, was that the one, Suzuka? That's co- correct, Suzuka in Japan, was that Etten Senna won pole position, so his front 
of the grid to the, for the start of it, but he was not happy with this because this was the dirty side of the track. And he protested and said, no, I want to be on the other side of the track, otherwise Cross will just go straight past me. Time to talk World Cup football from 1990. Whoa, Dan. This Was this the, the football tournament that really got you going for England? Is this My, the one that you thought, yeah, this is it? absolutely. Um, I think it all gave us a false dawn that thinking tournaments would always be like this too. But just that first game even, just coming home from school and just remember... The holders, I believe it was, was it Argentina or against um, yeah. Cameroon? And you just, I just remember Claudio Canigia trying to run through, and like, like three or four Cameroon players were like um, trying to hack at him. Basically, they were literally just trying to chop him in half. Go on, Cameroon, and, hack and him. We thought, who are these guys? They're not going to do anything, and they ended up being like the the most exciting thing one of them anyway of the tournament with Roger Miller's exploits and that game beating the holders they beat Argentina early on in the tournament actually one of the things I saw which we probably forget is Maradona actually scored another goal by handball I, I had never seen heard that till you put that in there and, and I saw it and I was like oh yeah I, did. I think I remember this but he was he was maybe two or three yards out and he couldn't quite get it into the post and he kind of just elbowed and uh, and at the near post and just put it in with his elbow uh, against Russia. Sneaky. And we forget about all of these things, you know? But it's those little, little bits that we like to bring to you that you might have forgot from 1990. But yeah, Cameroon, they really brought the colour. They... It was it, first time an African team had really made a, that kind of um, impact. And was it Pele famously said that he thought an African team would win a World Cup before the millennium? I think yeah. it was before the yeah. millennium. I think that was it, or and 20 I, years. And I think sometimes people take what Pele says with a pinch of salt, but I think people actually thought, well, he, he might be right if this is anything to go by how they did, as we'll talk about in a sec. Well, no, let's talk about Cameroon. Um, let's not talk about how Cameroon faced England, mm. but some of the other stuff that went on. So, um, a great goal score. Pretty old, wasn't he? Roger Mila. He, did, Roger he liked Mila. a little dance by the corner flag. The shimmy. And he would choose a corner flag. And if he scored more than one, he'd go to the other corner flag. Was he flag. the top goal scorer in the whole tournament? No. Scalacci. Oh, Toto Scalacci. Six goals from Scalacci. Popping eyes. Um, and... Roger Miller got, got four goals, but four goals from an African player. When they weren't expected to do anything, when they had the holders in their group, and just that excitement when he scored and the, the celebration. The celebration, not just his celebration, but they had the bundles as well, which yeah, we used yeah, to do at school. There was bundles and they were just like, you'd get out of the bundle, and this is what Cameroon would do. You'd get out of the bundle, get up, and you'd jump on top of the other person. So they were just like jumping on top of each other and doing somersaults, you know, look it up, just Roger Miller goals, World Cup 1990. And Even 94, he's a few it'll just bring joy to your face just quick one of them I remember that another legend of that time uh, the goalkeeper from um, Colombia was trying to Rene Aguita was Higuita, trying to yeah. dribble all of it outside his box and Miller tackles him and sort of just puts it in easily and you're like it's just stuff you didn't see you weren't used to seeing goalkeepers running out of their box trying to play football then I mean the, fa the, the fact that Higuita and Miller are on the same pitch 
was enough. Sort of two anti-heroes of football, like, like ended up being more legendary after they played than probably when they were playing. So that was the uh, the main chunk of Cameroon's tournament. We'll come back to Cameroon versus England because that was significant for us. Uh, Roberto Baggio scored, I think it was pretty certain to be the best goal of the tournament because to be honest, the tournament was in terms of quality, a little bit up and down. Mm. Platz was pretty good, but was, that was probably a little bit better than... Um... I think the fact that there, is a, there was a bit of a team goal yeah, and, yeah. and although Baggio took the ball most of the way through the half, he, he essentially the ball was given to him in his own half he got it from about the halfway line dribbled it, played a 1-2 beat three or four players took it into the the box um, and killed it around the goalkeeper into the far post it felt like but because of the movement as well the way players were being drawn away from him as well um, and he could almost w- drop his shoulder to to signify that he might play the pass felt like it was a, more of a team goal um, and including that layoff as well so I, I, I'd probably give it to Roberto Baggio even though I didn't really like him ever the not divine, in that tournament, not, not in another tournament. There was something that annoyed me about him. But the it divine the, ponytail, he's like um, Italy's legend. He was, and a, a, a great player, but there's something I didn't like about him. I, don't, I, think, I feel like he never quite did it when he really, really needed to do it. It was a penalty, though, what we'll probably talk about in a few shows' time. Um, so, Roberto Baggio, goal of the tournament. Um, Scotland needed to get a result against Brazil in their last group um qualifying game to get through but they lost 1-0 don't lose against Costa Rica that's the moral of the story first game of the tournament you've got to win against Costa Rica and actually we know that being England fans you've got to win against Costa yeah, Rica yeah, absolutely um, England got through the knockout stages in spite of starting with two draws standard this is a standard England start to the tournament two I, draws I just remember the Republic of Ireland game the worst game ever England played brilliantly against Holland like you say, they hit the woodwork twice. Holland, two, two disallowed goals against Netherlands. Holland were the, like, the European champions, a brilliant team, and England played excellently against them. We were unlucky not to win. And then got a fortuitous late win against Egypt. Only 1-0. Like, literally, the group was so close. Like, Egypt probably drawed the other two games. It was, it was that close between all the teams. One thing looking back, and we would have not known this, is that... There was a point in the Netherlands game, England versus Netherlands, where Gaza whipped the ball in across to Gary Lineker, who was at the far post, who was stretching out, trying to get to the end of the cross, and it missed his studs by maybe four inches. And it looked identical to the Euro 96 attempt, where Gaza almost put the ball in at the, uh, at, at the end of a cross in, in a famous semi-final. But it's one of those things at the time you wouldn't have thought about it. But looking back, I thought, my goodness, it's it's exactly the same. The same positioning, the same way he stretched and just missed the goal. At the time, it didn't make a difference because England went through in the end. But looking back, you kind of think, wow, it's amazing how some things kind of echo and and follow. And actually, the tournament generally, the way the pattern went of a kind of stuttering start and the media getting up against England, then eventually bring the country round flattering to deceive it followed a very similar pattern to Euro 96 it's, it's, it's kind of crazy how it goes and how it ends um, and how this repeats itself it's like history repeating itself um, 
the interesting thing we talked about this tournament is there was a draw. There was a draw for who played each other after the group stage. Like the FA Cup has a draw to see who plays each other the, the next round. They actually had this in the in the tournament, and I never remembered this. It's, it's probably the last time, and it, it was weird in that we were saying three teams out of four literally got through, and Egypt were quite unfortunate not to go through. So it was it was that close. They could have almost been picking lots up. I guess they would have done. They would have probably drawn out who would have qualified and who wouldn't have then. I think there's something I like about that. I always yeah, think maybe that, you should bring it back. that the way that they seed it and then only allow a certain number of teams to go through, you know, two, two out of four, let's say now, means that, you know, you know who those two seeded teams are. It feels like it's already set all the way through. Now that you've got those two seeded teams, mm. it's quite difficult for some to come through that. Whereas it brings a little bit more excitement if if it suddenly stirs it up. You've got through your, your group stage, which, okay, still might be only two now. But you might then have a good draw and it'll give you a chance. And I don't think it'll really take away that the, the best team will probably still end up winning. I think I think it's fine to do draws. I'm, I'm up for that. The, all this pre-knowing it, maybe it would make tournaments more interesting. And teams wouldn't play out to come second knowing they've got an easier, easier route or something. Now, and also, FIFA don't have the best track record of being absolutely being there's, straight and narrow. There's another show for that. Um, and do you think? Well, you know, it's it's good for them for the the, the big teams to make it later on in the, in, in the tournaments because it makes mm. good viewing figures, good sponsorship. Like that am I? Is it bad that I might be postulating that they really wanted to ensure that the big guys got through to the end of the tournament and maybe that's why they just said seeds all the way... Essentially, it is kind of seeds all the way through because the, the who would play each other was then also determined by your seeding. I think I think you're, you're dead right and I think it's just the way the World Cup was. It was the expansion of it, it because before that, I think it was two tournaments before that, it was literally the World Cup was just two groups like in the late 70s, early 80s. So... It, it went a lot further till then and maybe it, it went further in a good way and it was a good thing how they expanded it the only thing missing was maybe not every continent was there like represented about, yeah we talk about Africa and Egypt and Cameroon but maybe there could have been more South American and and and, and um, African nations maybe it was too European dominated well when was the last time you could remember England Scotland and Republic you know three of those teams yeah. being through you know it's and that's that's good for us i don't necessarily think it represents the whole of the world maybe at the time mm. but i think now now i'm happier that it's spread around and you have more african countries when you get the likes of cameroon coming through and really blazing the tournament are you that upset if one of the home nations that kind of grits out for example, and I'm not, I've not got anything against Republic of Ireland. They've had some really entertaining tournaments, but they get through three drawn games in the qualifiers. They get through to the knockout tournament in th with three draws. Beat Remainer on penalties. On penalties, so effectively that's technically not a win. Yeah. That's well, that's a draw in the main game, and they get through on penalties. But I think in the stats that still goes down as a draw mm. so essentially four draws and a through to the quarterfinals I don't know whether you want that to be happening in a, in a World Cup they end up losing in the quarterfinal to Italy and that was actually quite a quite a, an interesting dramatic game and, and Jack Charlton said oh well there's only one one thing that went wrong otherwise we would have uh, it was we a had mistake a I think by the keeper Pat 
Paddy Bonner. That's right, Pat Bonner. Although I and I couldn't find this out, and maybe I need to do a little bit more research. There was a a ball that I thought crossed the line, and they showed, and I saw the clip where it it hit the crossbar, but it was so quick I couldn't see. But I'm sure Italy hit the crossbar. The ball bounced down, and nothing was given. No goal line type. No goal line. There wasn't even a replay, and I I just wanted a replay in slow motion, and it got glazed over. And since uh, Italy was the home nation, you'd think they'd want to show that. The Italy fans, you know, I think it's really good when a home nation goes, or the host nation, sorry, goes deep into a tournament. But the Italy fans actually did really set the scene mm. for that tournament. There now, England. You said Egypt mm. just scraped through. Well, Belgium, we were a bit lucky. They hit the, they hit the woodwork twice. Enzo Schifo, what a, what a player from that team. Yeah, that England were very, very lucky that game. We Was go it last to extra, second of extra time? We, we go to extra time against Belgium. Uh, David Platt comes off the bench. It's a great goal. And I think I'm right in saying Gaza plays... A little chip over the top and he swivels. and over his, it, Kind of the ball goes over his shoulder, he swivels. All in one, volleys it in. Pass it in. Mark Prudhomme. I, I think as... As a child, that was the goal that I'll remember before I hit the teenage years. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the goal, and that's the one that I tried to do in the park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and David Platt, I think, was my favourite player from from about then onwards, really, into he, well into the 90s. He was probably England's, all through the 90s, one of their most consistent performers, definitely. So England make it through against Belgium. Uh, Argentina... Argentina... Uh, win two games on penalties and they, they snuck through into the final. Uh, England... Beat, I was going to say beat Italy in Italy on penalties and most of the fans in Naples were supporting Argentina because of Maradona. That's a, that's a whole different... Absolutely. I mean, there are films made about that. Great one too. Um, but that is a whole separate... a whole separate show mm. which I'd love to do one day. Um, England, Cameroon... This is so. Tell me what happened in this, Dan. You'll 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 know it better than I almost. Well, we we were playing well for about sixty minutes. We went one up. Was it Gary Lineker? Yeah. So Gary Lineker scores. It all looked good for England. Then it seemed like Cameroon became inspired, and um, they scored a good team goal. I, I can't remember one of the guys who scored. One of the goals was called Oman B- Oman Bieko. So it sounds like yeah. it, it just flicks in the mind. There was a good goal when there was a few flicks and one-twos and a little chip over Peter Shilton. And then there was... They went ahead. And it was... There wasn't long to go. There was only about 20 minutes to go. And it looked like they were more... They had more energy. They were stronger than England. And literally, I think it was just naivety that cost Cameroon that game. Defensive naivety. For some reason, they were obsessed with fouling England players when they were on top of the game. And... They gave away two penalties, one to take the game into extra time. Thankfully, Gary Lineker could take penalties and um, he scored one to take it into extra time. Again, it was nervy in extra time watching the game as an adult and also as a kid. You didn't know if England were going to do it. They seemed to get another penalty and um, thankfully Gary Lineker scored. But wow, we were lucky. and uh, Scraping through. We... Be honest, Cameroon and Belgium were better teams on the day than England that in that tournament. We got our bit of luck in them games. I think that's your thing with with most runs I can think of it with England in 
um, tournament just football. Great. It, they're up and down, and we mm. scrape through quite a few matches actually. Mm. Um, and Especially this is, that tournament. This is one of them. So sometimes when you lose those tight ones, we kind of think, "Oh, why us? Why me? Blah blah blah. Why England?" But actually, we rode our luck, and this is a perfect example. And there are other examples in other tournaments. Um, so scrape through, and then we suddenly get ourselves to a semi-final against West Germany. And played brilliant against the best. They were the best team up till then in the tournament, looking big favourites. But England played brilliantly that night. And that, I think, even to the neutral, was probably the exciting, the match of the tournament, mm. which was up and down and had some some close affairs and games going to penalties. Um, Chris Waddle almost scored. Almost scored from about 45 yards out. He had to tip that onto the bar, didn't he? It was dropping in. The German keeper just tipped it over. Germany scored a lucky goal. Was it Bremer with a free... It deflected off Paul Parker, went right up in the air. And Peter Shilton always looked like a a small goalkeeper. and he seemed Small and a little bit kind of... uh, He wasn't athletic in that same way. You don't feel like he could scramble. He was 40 then as well. He was was, 40? Yeah, he, he, you know... Well, that's probably why it took an age to try and yeah, scramble and get that. There was it, that whole thing. Was he quite agile enough? But he did lots of good things that tournament. It was a deflection, so who knows? It, yeah, really went high up and deflected over him. So you can't blame Peter Schilfer for that. But those Germans getting that kind of luck. It's yeah, just absolutely. not fair. Um, so that took it. Gary Lineker levelled. That took it 1-0. And then Gary Lineker scored... I think it was iconic for not just the finish, and he kind of had a little bit of a, a, it's quite a far roll out for Lineker. on his left foot yeah. into the far, the, the far post. And I think almost the celebration Passion. was was almost as replayed as the actual goal. It was him with his hands up in the air and, and Stuart Pearce kind of putting his arm around him and, and hugging him. Um, kind of really... It's one of those things that you kind of you see you see in music videos when you have three lines being recreated by Bedil and Skinner, and you see it getting replayed every time that goal gets scored. You see the celebration um, afterwards, and you, you put those two things together. So that brought it level. Chris Waddle, he he, um, he hit the post again. Yeah, now he was a top there. He was getting transferred for like four and a half million to Marseille that summer. So he was like a. He was literally one of the top players in Europe at that point, so it doesn't surprise me. Then Paul Gascoigne running around the pitch. Passion. The ball was not really going anywhere, but he made a diving lunge and caught one of the German players with his studs. In, in the modern age, you know, you could you could probably you could argue being sent off for that. Paul Gascoigne gets a yellow card. Um, which means that he stays in this match, but he won't play in a potential final. And he used the tears came. And the famous Gaza tears came. The Gary Lineker have a word with him to the bench, which again... Iconic. Iconic. That all kicked in. So we end up going to penalties. Mm. Extra time and penalties. And... Um, well, it's the, it was same old England, really. Yeah, uh, German hi- efficiency. Yeah, my hero, Miss Stuart Pearce. So it, it was 3 all. We had uh, Platt, Lineker, Beardsley scoring the first three goals. Um, Germany, I think, started off 
the, it always the looked like again Shilton just couldn't quite reach them. He go, he went the way right way, but he just seemed like he wasn't quite agile wasn't enough. Quite there. Um, so it goes into the fourth penalty. Stuart Pearce takes it. Can, can I just say Stuart Pearce took penalties all the time for Nottingham Forest and free kicks, and he was great at penalties. Well, he scored one. He scored one in the tournament. He scored yeah. a free kick from the tournament. And, um, there was no, there was no doubt really. No, because he we took thought penalty, it, thought the it was fourth. Be fine. The fourth is one of the ones you'd expect. Literally, the Pierce takes penalties, and the fifth would be Waddle, literally the most talented player that England had, along with Gascoigne, and who was starring for Marseille then, literally one of the best teams in Europe. So Stuart Pierce um, has his penalty saved. I'm correct in saying that was saved. Yeah, was the keeper and Kopka? I can't. I don't think it's Kopka. I don't think so. Yeah. I'll, I'll look it up. But I don't think it's so. I don't Hit think his knees. I remember. But it wasn't a great penalty. No, it's terrible. Um, so that meant that when Chris Waddle came up, he needed to score to take it to that final penalty. So Germany actually had the last penalty. So Chris Waddle steps up. Now I think this is the difference. You would expect Chris Waddle to score, but when you saw him yeah. prepare and run up mm. and kind of look around and look a little bit nervous and this is a guy like I say a star of the team like a star of European football at that point and he just seemed like everything just got too much for him blazes the ball over the crossbar and I think the ball's That's still travelling unfortunately the ball's still going yeah. somewhere In it's going to drop down and it'll come down with some ice on it and uh, he became the third player to cry I would say they all cried but you know in that order it went Gaza Pierce, and Chris Waddle the tournament was over for England. Well, there was a third-place playoff. Made lots of changes then. We um, we had a legendary, historic game. We lost it. We played really well, though. But it gave us the hope. The hope to, to mm. try and last us through a decade. Peter Shilton retires at the end of the tournament. That was Bobby Robson, or the third-place playoff where we lost against Italy. We lost against Italy. Yeah. Yeah. 2-1, I think. Um was Bobby Robson's last managerial game for for England. Yeah, they knew he was going before the tournament, so they seemed to do a good thing. He went out on a high. And Scalacci actually scored his sixth goal. Against England. Against England in the third place playoff. So whenever we say, oh, should we have them? Should we not have them? I think for that was Scalacci, a bad mistake by somebody in England to enable that. I'll look back, but I'm pretty sure. I think so. I kind of, I don't think I actually watched it. It, it was a bit of an after show's party. It might have been the first, third, fourth playoff they'd had in World Cups, actually. So Italy won the third place playoff. And then we get to this final, which... A bit dull was Germany versus Argentina, West Germany versus Argentina, and it was um, one of the most cynical games in World Cup history. Mainly by one team, though? I... Yeah, you'd say it was dominated by one team. But but, but would you say that... The, there was the, needle on both sides, and there was there was late tackles and things like that going on from both sides. And I think they, they both kind of try to outdo each other mm. from the mean point of view. And I think because of the way the game went it probably made it a little bit more one side going so there was almost like there has to be an equaliser not necessarily in terms of goals but an equaliser on the pitch um, and that didn't quite work out we had our first sending off in a World Cup final who was uh, Pedro Monzon uh, came on as a substitute and was sent off for a foul on Jürgen Klinsmann um, he might have dived knowing Jürgen <laughs> He might have dived. He was famous for that. Um, then and afterwards, and, and kind of 
took the mick out of his own diving. Um, but yes, Argentina had a player sent off. Um, in the closing moments, Argentina were reduced to nine men as uh, Gustavo De Zotti, De Zotti um, had already been given a yellow card, was given a second uh, yellow, which turns into a red. And then we saw Argentina had three players that rushed in. One was protesting with the referee. The other one rushed in, took a little bit of him with his shoulder. Maradona's running up behind and goes in front of them, pushes them away, his own players, but then really gets in the referee's face like he's like, I'll sort this out, now guys. Saying it. I uh, initially, that. initially you thought, okay, Maradona's playing the peacemaker. What he did is he pushed them out of the way and said, I'm going to sort this out. Like, let me handle it. And gets really in his face. And then behind, uh, another player comes up and just runs up and, and, and shoulder barges the referee from behind. You know, like you'd see on a Friday night somewhere in, in, in a city somewhere or other. Um, he's just like, right, my mates are in trouble. And he comes up and, and, and probably knocks him out. The referee stands on his feet. Um, most footballers in the in the current era would have taken a role and, and asked for a, a you know a, a five point nine on uh, on the the judges' scorecards. You would have got uh, a few red card, more red cards. He took it. Now. No one really got sent off or punished for it. I think he was partly intimidated because if he sent any more off, he might not have made it out of uh, the stadium alive. Um, Maradona. Ends up crying because Germany wins. Andy Bremer with the penalty. Germany, West Germany, I should say, won the tournament 1-0. And that was the last time West Germany won the tournament because the Berlin Wall collapses, Germany unites, and we have Germany rather than West Germany. That was sport in 1990. Vintage year, mate. Now, there's only really one. There's only really one song I can play after that, and I think any time that England do well in the tournament, I feel like I have to play this on repeat. New order, world in motion. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye. Get well soon. Take care. Some of the crowd are on the pitch.